Good evening. Again, it's so good to have you here. Uh, we want to continue our focus on the issue that has been raised in our exposition of First Corinthians chapter 7, and that is marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I am sure I don't have to tell you that this has uh, probably been one issue that has caused a lot of uh, division within the church. There's so many opinions and differences of views on this subject. That's why I want to encourage you uh, to do your own personal study, because in the final analysis, your belief and your actions as a result of your belief is going to be dependent upon what God, the Holy Spirit, uh, convinces you of, causes you to understand. And uh, I want to encourage that. <clears throat> but also, I want, you to say, I want to emphasize that it's very important that you do that. It's essential that you do it, I believe, because God has left these instructions for us, not just for us to uh, take if we want, but to guide our lives. So we're going to try to answer some of the questions this evening that normally arise from the study. And there are hundreds of them, all right? And uh, I was going to begin by um, asking and answering the questions that I know are normally asked. But let me begin, as usual, by asking you whether or not you have any questions or comments concerning the subject. Pastor, as always, um, I appreciate your thorough approach to the subject. And I was wondering about the seven reasons why pernea could not mean adultery. If you could clarify number two. Uh, what I'm saying is, it's both, the, in one sense, uh, it says that if somebody is guilty of it, it frees the other person to marry, right? Then uh, when they marry, uh, if you use the same word, you commit the thing that freed you in the first place. You understand what I'm saying? That's the contradiction. That's the problem. If you see the word as referring to adultery. In other words, you commit adultery that leads you to commit adultery. One you're freed from, the other one you're bound again. You see what I'm saying? Um, so to me, that's a problem. It, does, it just is not rational or logical to think along those lines. Now, if you leave it to fornication rather than adultery, the way the King James Version does, by the way, I believe the King James Version, probably of all the other in this instance, is probably more correct than all the others. The, one, the, the version I like, for instance, the New American Standard Bible, I believe is way off here because it allows any kinds of immorality. You see what I'm saying? When you read the new, some of the new versions, they use sexual immorality. So that means any kind of sexual immorality. It's sort of any cause type of a thing. And so uh, I believe in this case, the King James Version is right on because if you accept the King James Version where they use the word fornication rather than adultery, then you could say that it applies to the Jewish betrothal period. You see what I'm saying? 
because fornication was the basis for divorce uh, in the betrothal period. And it was called that, although some had even called adultery because they regarded the betrothal period as marriage. But if you uh, look at it from the Jewish point of view, the King James would be accurate if it applies to the betrothal period. Is that clear? All right. At least it's clear for him anyway. All right. And by the way, you know, some of you made made a comment, boy, that's a lot of stuff. Well, that is true uh, here because it's an important item. It's a, to me, it's, a, it's an important one. And you just don't need to hear people saying this is what it says. You need to be able to do your own research and say, here is the reason why we say this. All right? Here is the reason why. Because I say again, it's time for us not only to say we believe something, but also to know why we believe it. When you understand why you believe something, then you become convinced of it. If you don't know why, you're ready to move any direction. The wind blows. All right, any other questions, comments? Um, Pastor Lee, as a result of this, I, first of all, it is quite um, challenging to really make heads or tails of a lot of it. I went on when I started to do a word study because there were a couple of things that you mentioned. Good, I appreciate that. Yeah, um, I could try and figure out because I wanted to know once you started using the word pornea and indicating that it's one word with broad meaning and interpretation because I thought the diagram you put on the screen that showed that all of those well-regarded translations all are using different English words to impute what the meaning is of this word pornea. The question I have for you is, when I did the, the Greek... Let, let me, before I say to you, but that was their interpretation, you see. Yeah, their interpretation, right. But I mean, the word itself does have several, I guess, there's several right. usages. They had to choose one and only one. Right. So now, their interpretation came through. Got it? I got you. All right. My question is, I went and then did a search. In the Greek, there's a, the word, there's a word that actually translates directly for adultery, which is moikia. Moikia. And I'm curious, and maybe you might have some idea, having studied these things, why do you think it was interesting, first of all, that none of the letters of Paul that I could find, the Pauline epistles or any of his writings in the New Testament, he never uses that particular word. He always uses pornea. And I'm also curious, at least based on the study that I did, okay. um, why wouldn't that word have been used specifically? The explanation that you gave earlier, talking about the reason why pornea was used deliberately by Jesus, makes sense to me. But there are other instances where, why would that word pornea be used if the word ends up being translated into the English Bible as adultery in many other cases where pornea is actually the Greek word, as, a, as opposed to moikia? That's my question. Well, I guess that, that's the point I was trying to make. I didn't want to use another Greek word because I don't like to use all these words, you know, here unless we're in a class situation. But that's what I was trying, the point I was trying to make, really. You have two different Greek words. You have poneia and you have moika. All right? Now, when you translated adultery, you're changing it in. You're changing poneia into moika. So you have him saying, unless for the cause of Moika, uh, you can't have it, and if you do it, you commit Moika. You understand what I'm saying? That's the point I was trying to make. They had two different Greek words, but they're trying to use it as though there's only one. 
In other words, Paul used porneia because that's what he meant. He didn't mean moeko, which is adultery, which is moeko. Are you following this? See, that's the point I wanted to make. Two different words in the same sentence. But yet, if you take it as adultery, as we normally do, you are then turning another Greek word into the meaning of moeko, which is always translated, always translated adultery. Moeko is never translated any other way other than adultery. See the point? But yet, when we come to this point, we want to change the Greek word. That's why I say it's just illogical for that word to mean adultery. I believe it can mean uh, fornication, but not adultery. Pastor Lee. Are you all confused? Pastor Lee, um, my question goes back to, I think, a few Sundays ago, not this morning, um, with regards to virgins. Um, Paul always seems to um, imply that women are to be virgins. Appears to be in the... In yeah, I, I, true, unmarried women, yeah, definitely. Yeah, unmarried. Yeah, I mean, he always says that. Yeah, always. Yeah. always. Why it is in, uh, in the sense that if we as men and women, okay, when it comes to um, relationship, it never seems to imply that men are to be in, 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 in relationship. Well, I think um, I don't think you're going to hold that if you read through First Corinthians seven. I think he talks about uh, both, but I think you're right because most of the time that's the trouble you have. People you have trouble with the with the women. You don't have too much trouble with the men. You only have trouble with the women. I'm. <laughs> I'm only kidding about that. I'm only kidding. Uh, that's a good point, uh, uh, Priscilla. But that's that's the focus. But in principle, he means any unmarried person is a virgin, whether it's male or female, all right? And he insists that uh, there's no sexual relation. Right. All right? Okay? Now, you, you have to remember, too, that he's writing in a context that is quite different from ours socially to now, as far as how uh, the sexes were treated, you see? That's why you have to look back upon Christ and Paul, Christianity, as really the reason for the liberation of women uh, and giving women the, the kind of high honor and respect that God places upon them. Uh, that's why it amazes me why um, women today of the feminist um, uh, attitude could call uh, Paul a male chauvinist and so on. It, it shows ignorance from my thinking on what Scripture is teaching. Christianity has done so much to lift women from the position they had in early years. There's no doubt about that at all. Pastor Lee, what is the difference between the Jewish way of marriage and the Muslim way of marriage? Well, there's quite a bit of difference. There's a lot of similarities, but quite a bit of differences as well. Uh, and I don't really want to get into that aspect of it, but um, you'll find, I think, that the, the, even though Jesus accuses the man of abusing the women in such a way. I believe when you come to the Muslim area, it's even much worse, even today. Now, that might be a harsh statement, and it's not always true. But as far as the overall thing is concerned, that is so. 
we, we, even in some cases with the, with the Jewish people, they still hold on, especially the Orthodox Jews, they still uh, hold on to some of the, what they call Orthodox teaching from way back when it comes to their relationship with, with women. All right? That's why, again, I say it is Christianity. It's Christianity that gives women the rightful place as far as marriage is concerned and everything else. And that's why we should be so thankful uh, for the New Testament and the teaching concerning women. All right, let me ask you, somebody define marriage for me. What constitutes marriage? How many of you are married? Tell me what marriage means. What constitutes marriage? It's amazing we never think about these things. Eh? Can two people on an island get married? Just by themselves? No, yes. So your answers depend on how you define marriage. Isn't that right? You see? What are the essential elements in a marriage? A witness? So all they need is a third person. Huh? God in the midst. So those two people can get married. All right, hold on now, hold on, let's go. Marriage is a spiritual thing. You mentioned government. So then I don't need government. Can I get married in church and say that's a true marriage? I'm not saying legal now, I say a true marriage because we know it isn't legal if we don't have government involved, right or wrong. All right? It might be religious, it might even be Christian, but it isn't legal. So is that a real marriage? In the eyes of God, but not in the eyes of man. So when we live in a community, are we living in the eyes of God alone, or should we be concerned about the eyes of man? Did God institute government? Right? God instituted government. Right? So what is marriage? What is Marriage. I'm not saying legal. I, what is marriage? Is it important? For instance, I can come to Calvary Bible Church here and Pastor Arnold could marry us, right? I don't go before a government official. That marriage will not be recognized. True or false? True or false? So no matter how much of a Christian I am and I shack up with this lady, that I married in Calvary Bible Church, I'm breaking the law. True or false? Reverse it now. I want you to think, you see. Suppose I go before Pastor Arnott as a JP, not as a preacher, but a JP, and he marries me. Will the church recognize that? Will the church recognize it? Sure. The church will recognize it. Right? Well, you said Pastor Arnett as a JP. 
Yeah, let's say anyone who's a justice of the peace and whatever. Not a preacher. He's not representing the church. Yeah. That's your view. What is the what is the what is the law say? Yeah. Well, that's I'm trying to clarify something now. All right. All right. So, the, are the marriage recognized? Is the marriage recognized? You don't think God recognizes it? So, well, suppose these people are not atheists. Suppose they're not atheists. Suppose they're not Christians, though. And they go before a non-Christian JP and do the same thing. Does God recognize that? Now, I don't want to get too far off here. I, I, I'm trying to get you all. I'm trying to get you all to think through things that you don't normally think about. And sometimes you make judgments and criticisms on the wrong basis. You understand what I'm saying? And we talk about divorce when sometimes they don't even understand what marriage is. You see? And unless you understand what marriage is, you're really not going to be able to understand what divorce is. Why? Because divorce to some is supposed to undo what marriage is. But a person could get divorced without coming to church. And the church will still recognize it. Is that right? All right. So I'm trying to say here now, what is it? What is marriage? What is undone? Or can divorce undo a true marriage? That's what we're getting at. Well, let's, go, let's look at the scriptures again. What does it say in the, in the beginning? Uh, in verse 24, it says in chapter 2 of Genesis, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Now notice what it says. Who's he going to be joined to? All right. So leaving, right, is an important step before joining. Right? Really, there can be no joining, according to this definition, until there's leaving. Now leaving home, or what? Leaving your present home, parents. So marriage involves a leaving of your parents. Then you are joined to your wife. Now remember, your wife already. You're joined to your wife. The word for joined there is stick together. It's a strong word for gluing. And then, what takes place? You become one. Each one of those have the taken sequence to be a true marriage. Now, when you leave your mom and dad, let's say, I think as you read scripture, and this is just a seed truth here, it develops as we go along. 
you'll see that it has to do with what we call a social aspect. All of the community is involved. They know you're leaving your parents. It's a public thing, in other words. It isn't something you just do secretly. All right? I believe this is where the public aspect comes in. Now, here's, here is something else as you read through Scripture. In most cases, when you hear about marriages in Scripture, you have the, have the approval of someone. Who's that? Your parents. Read your scripture. The approval of the parents. So that's a question we have to ask. How much authority does parental approval play in a marriage? If you're going biblical now, I'm talking about you're going biblical. All right, that's what I'm talking about. Then there's the joining together. That means there's a Commitment, a lifelong commitment. This is where the idea of a contract, or the better word is what? Covenant comes in. All right? And they become one flesh. Now, the beginning of that one flesh does not begin with the sexual relation. It begins with the commitment to stick together. The sexual coming together to become one is the evidence now that this couple have in fact have already been joined. Paul teaches that it's impossible to have a sexual relation with another person without becoming one in that, in that case. But that alone does not constitute marriage. You follow me? That alone does not, although it's the essential part of it, it does not constitute marriage in itself. Is it an evidence that the two are becoming one? And the Bible calls it a one flesh. And one of the reasons why you're not allowed to marry a close relative is because the one flesh transaction cannot take place. That's why when that divorce takes place in the Old Testament, it really was what we would call today an annulment because the marriage was never really in place in the beginning. So when you look at it, and some of you are not going to be settling with this, what constitutes a marriage depends upon where you live because you have different laws in different countries, right or wrong. Right. You have different laws in different countries, but there are three major elements. It's the involvement of the public. They know there's a public commitment made. There's a leaving of the home, and there is a permanent relationship that allows people to have a sexual relationship without the condemnation of God. Now, when, the law, when we talk about whether a marriage is legal or not, we have to remember that God ordained government and gave it certain privileges and authority for the functioning of the community, you see. And we just cannot say, well, 
marriage is a spiritual thing, so all I do is go to church and get married, and I'm going to go to the Lord. That's not a marriage. That's not a marriage. You have to have that element in. Now, that's why it becomes a little complicated for the Christian. Why? Because the Christian should understand what the one flesh relationship is. One flesh relationship means that you are a part of that person even closer than your children. The children are commanded to leave their parents to get married. Married people are never commanded to go back to their parents. Right or wrong? You see, never. Also, the marriage relationship is only a temporary one. (laughs) By that I mean... It only lasts as long as we live. The marriage relationship ends at death. Now that brings in a lot of other questions about heaven and all of that, but I'm not going to that part of it. Just talking about the essence of marriage. What I'm saying to you, and it's true what one of you said, although the legal aspect is there, From the beginning, marriage has been a spiritual undertaking, a spiritual union. And one of the things you have to notice when you read the scriptures, you'll see that divorce or remarriage does not end the first marriage. It does not end. Why, for instance, would a person be committing adultery if they marry a person who's been divorced? is because they're having sexual relations with somebody else's spouse. See the point? If that wasn't true, then you wouldn't be committing adultery when you remarry. So you'll never find anywhere where God recognizes a divorce that breaks a marriage or dissolves a marriage. Nowhere. All right? So my point is this. Marriage is one of the most important decisions you can make, the person you marry. You don't make it easily or haphazardly. It should be after much prayer, much consideration, because it is a lifelong relationship, and you need to keep that in mind. Yes? Um, The person who is divorced and marries another person and they continue to have, now you, you just, in fact, I know God is a forgiven God, where sin abound, grace did much more abound, and that is experiential. Um, if a person who's divorced and remarry another person, and they continue to have sexual relationship, um, where does grace come in? I mean, what I'm hearing is that a person who's divorced and they continue to have a relationship because the first marriage hasn't died. The person's still alive. So where, how do we fit in, into that? Yeah, that, that's, uh, I tell you, that's probably one of the most complex questions that we can use. And um, again, I could go to the, the Greek for this, but I don't want to, although I'll be mentioning it, as to whether or not, uh, actually, when some people read the words of Jesus and says, if you uh, marry another person, you commit adultery. Some people are actually saying just a remarriage without the sexual act is adulterous. All right? Now, I personally don't believe that. 
I don't believe it's the marriage without the sexual act that results in adultery. But I just want to show you some people say that, all right? But um, I, I want to be careful because this is a little complex. Some view the marriage act itself associated with adultery, sexual act, as a one-time event. In other words, the sin of remarriage is when you decide to have the remarriage and then you have sexual relations with the person you marry. However, ongoing sexual relation is not seen as living in a state of adultery. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, you don't commit adultery every time you have the sexual act. That's one position. Now, the other position is just the opposite. They say, no, it's not only the first act, but every act thereafter, you're committing adultery. And that's what they term, what? Living in sin or living in adultery. And that's the two major views. Now, I can be frank. Because of the Greek word here that Jesus used, I've been going back and forth on this. Because there's, there's something that calls the tense. When something is described, you could, you could describe it as meaning once, and that's the end of it. All right? But you could use an, the same word, but it has to be used with another noun or what. I'm not going to get into all that. But it could mean an ongoing thing, not just once and that's the end. That's what they call the aorist idea. The other is what... Uh, is the idea of a continuous tense. It goes on and on. That's why they get the idea of living in sin. All right? Uh, initially, I tended to accept the first one where it was an event that occurred when you remarried, and then that was the adulterous act. Uh, but as I said, I sort of moved a little bit more to see it as a continuous thing. It's a problematic uh, uh, issue, and I think you will find as many views as you find preachers or scholars on this particular one. All right, but it just shows you the complexity of sin when it comes to violating God's laws on marriage. Uh, we'll come back to this. Hi, Pastor Lee. Um, my concern is union that marriage is a union between a man and a woman. And um, if, if two young persons decided to leave um, the home because of immoral acts and um, because marriage is holy and um, ordained by God um, and they decide that they want to go out and um, get married and... Um, they are non-Christians. How, how does it work um, in reference to Christians and non-Christians um, being married? And um, only to find out later on that they had fallen through the loop of divorce. And after growing up, maturing, and realizing that um, they now understand it and they're now ready to go through marriage for the second time and their spouse is still alive, how does God recognize that and um, how, how um, is that dealt with in terms of remarriage with, as far as Christians and Well, that's quite a tangled web. That's quite a tangled web. Um, 
let me let me uh, I hope you you're trying I hope you're realizing the kind of problems that sin brings. All of this is because of sin, you realize that, eh? And not uh, following the word of God. Let me begin by saying this. Marriage is not a Christian institution. Marriage came on the scene long before the church and long before government, when you get right down to it. It's a creation thing. So it applies to Christian and non-Christian. See? As far as the basic elements and essence of marriage is concerned. So we have to be careful how we try to say this is Christian uh, when it relates to marriage and, and this has to do with non-Christian. All right? God has guidelines for the Christian for sure. And the, the guidelines to the Christian is much higher than it is for the unsaved. There's no doubt about that at all. Uh, but I think you're asking, if I follow your question correctly, you're asking the same thing. Uh, the basic thing is, if you have already made the mistake of marrying and uh, divorce or whatever it is, to say that I'm going to divorce my mate now and try to go back and live things the way it should be, if you, especially if you have children already and all kinds, it just complicates the issues, you see. And that's why I believe the Deuteronomy 24 passage was given. Uh, you just don't do that, especially to think of divorce and get married again. Because that is even a, that is even a more complicated issue at that point. Um, However, one of the choices you can take is if you do leave, is just to remain unmarried. Okay, Pastor Lee, if it's you know ordained, how do you know um, for some persons if the marriage, first of all, was ordained by God? Even though we say um, you know that marriage is holy. Um, and ordained by God. Um, how do we know if some marriages are ordained? Well, let me say this. Hold on. See, this is another error we make. When we say marriage is ordained by God, we do not necessarily mean that each person who gets married is ordained by God. In other words, the person that you choose. The marriage institution is ordained by God. You understand what I'm saying? That is ordained by God. And that's why he says, let no man separate. For instance, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Uh, he's not talking about the marriage ceremony. He's talking about the union that was made. You see? A lot of people, when they think about divorce, they're just thinking the legal document undoes the ceremony. You see, that's, they, that undoes the, un, the ceremony. But God says, if the marriage has taken place... You might undo the ceremony legally, but you don't undo the one flesh. And that's where the highest standard comes for the Christian. All right? Just let me go back to the idea of, give you a little clarity of what I was trying to say about marriage. Culturally, socially, a legal union, talking about marriage now, what it is, from a cultural or social point of view. It's a legal union between a man and a woman performed by an official of the state in the presence of witnesses. That's how we look at marriages today, right or wrong, right? The culture and laws of the particular country, therefore, determine what is recognized as a marriage. You see the point? The Scriptures also talks about the consent of parents or 
uh, for, for marriages as well. Uh, you read the Old Testament especially, you'll see this. Now, most people disregard that today. Then, of course, there's the ratification before the public. I'm talking about marriages today now. In other words, you have a ceremony that is witnessed by others, and you have a minister uh, who can perform the ceremony. In most cases, a church or a preacher cannot marry two people who does not have a government license. Right or wrong? So in one sense, we, when you get married in a church, you're sort of killing two birds with one stone. You're doing a job for the government as well as for God. You see? And, and that's why we have this sort of arrangement. But from the Christian point of view, a marriage is a covenant that consists of vows or oaths and witness to by other individuals. It's a contract in which the Christian understands that God is a witness, not just the best man and the best woman. But the Christian recognizes, based on Malachi and other passages, that God himself is a witness, which means, in a, which means technically that the vows that are made cannot be broken unless the witnesses agree. Contracts have people as witnesses. Covenants have God as a witness. God acts as the guarantor that the two who have made the covenant, the vows will be carried out. That's why a Christian should be able to say, my marriage is ordained by God, not just the ceremony, but my marriage has been ordained by God. That's the difference I want to make now. Now, when we look at the Genesis record again, the consummation of the marriage, you recall sexual relations, indicates that the marriage union is instituted at the point of cleaving, not becoming one flesh. In other words, the marriage takes place at the point of cleaving, not at the point of becoming one flesh, having sexual relations. Premarital sex demands marriage, according to the Old Testament, unless the father objects. Now, once a person in the Old Testament uh, marries the person that they had relationships with before marriage, they could never get a divorce. Never. Never get a divorce. That was one situation where divorce was not allowed if you had relationships before marriage and then you got married. That Jewish man had no legal basis to divorce that woman again, or his wife. Some people sometimes ask also, does the guilt or innocence of a mate make a difference regarding divorce and remarriage? In other words, is there such a thing as an innocent party and a guilty party? Because they say, those who believe there is, say that the innocent party is allowed to remarry. I don't think that has any biblical basis at all. All right? No, I don't think that has any biblical basis. The guilt of one partner for any sin does not give the other 
so-called innocent partner, either the right to divorce or to remarry after divorce. The same principles hold. Some people ask, does it make a difference if divorce and remarriage occurs before one is saved? They go back to 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we become new creations. Behold, all things are passed away. Therefore, they say, what I did before I became saved does not affect me after I become saved. Again, I don't think that is true. Well, I don't believe that is true according to biblical teaching when it comes to consequences. We are forgiven, but the consequences are not necessarily removed. God gives us grace to help bear the consequences. I always like to illustrate it. You know, if I am committing a robbery and in that robbery, I get my arm shot off. When I go to jail, my arm does not grow back. No, no matter how many times I confess that, right or wrong. And I think that's the same thing true with this as well. It's a creation act uh, when it comes to marriage, not just a Christian one. Now, remarriage and divorce are not unforgivable sins, but the consequences remain nonetheless. Paul specifically teaches that one's marriage union is in no way changed by one of the partners becoming a Christian. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks when we get down to the later verses in 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to see what happens when an unsaved and a saved person live together, or are married and so on. Another question sometimes that is asked is, is legal separation biblical? Again, going to sec in 1 Corinthians 7, some see the text as saying that the word depart it does not mean divorce, but it simply means abandonment. You leave and you get out, and therefore they see desertion as an, a basis. We're going to look at that passage closely, and we can see that is not true. Desertion is not a basis for divorce or for remarriage. Some people say, what do you mean then we stay in a marriage no matter what happens? Yes or no. I'm not saying, and I believe that uh, you will see when we get into the later verses of First Corinthians 7, that Paul allows for this. If there is abuse or threat of life, why you should stay there and be beaten up or be killed. But the point is, you don't divorce. And we'll see that as we go on as well. Um, and that's why I take the position that separation would be appropriate in certain extreme cases. When you come to abuse and so, uh, and, and, and so on. You see, I believe that uh, it would not be unbiblical to leave a situation where abuse is involved. I'm talking about physical abuse, especially now. When I say unbiblical, I mean it would not be against the Bible although it is non-biblical. Do you know the difference between non-biblical and unbiblical? Non-biblical means it's not in the Bible. Unbiblical means it's not against what the Bible teaches. There's a difference as we look at it. Um, but I believe that the separation in this situation would be for the means of trying to help the situation and work towards reconciliation. For the Christian, God only has two positions uh, when it comes to problems in the marriage. You work it out. You see, you work it out. Uh, that's reconciliation. And then he says, or remain unmarried. He's talking about people who goes to the further step of uh, divorce. 
Okay, let me just finish a couple of the things I had made a note of. Another question I have here that is being asked, should a divorced or separated Christian become involved with someone else? What's your answer to that? No, definitely not. God's will is reconciliation, even if a legal divorce has in fact been taking place. It's still reconciliation. Should someone divorce the second spouse in order to be remarried to the original spouse? We've already uh, talked about that, but my brief answer here was no. That actually could be what is called legalized adultery. It would appear that the confession of the original divorce and remarriage as sin would be sufficient to do otherwise would merely compound the situation. As I said, that's a very difficult area. We also asked the question, is a person who has been divorced and remarried living in a state of continual adultery? Let me give you my written answer here, although I've responded to it a little bit. As I said before, this is a very difficult question to answer positively. However, it would appear from the use of the present tense in Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, it says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. This has what is called an aorist tense, which speaks of action being performed at a specific period of time. This would mean that the sin referred to in the initial act of divorce and remarriage and not the ongoing relationship. Now, as I say, there's an opposite view of that and shows that it is, in fact, an ongoing one. And that's where the big discussion comes in. Does a person who has never been married commit adultery if he or she marries a divorced person? According to Jesus' teaching, yes. In fact, as I said, Jesus is very clear. Although in that one instance with pornea, divorce is allowed, remarriage is never allowed. Number 10, is divorce remarriage greater than other sins? No, it is not. But it does appear to have consequences that are particularly related to the seriousness of its effects upon others. In fact, if you read, I think it's Proverbs chapter 6, verses 32 and 33, it says that the sin of adultery will, the, 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 the stain of adultery will never leave the individual, although the sin is forgiven. It's an amazing passage of scripture. I think it's Proverbs chapter 6. Now, this is why some people, for instance, some churches do not allow a divorced person to have a position as an elder or a pastor because of the, uh, because of the stigma that is attached to adultery and so on. And Proverbs chapter 6 is one of the reasons for that. Why is the marriage union so sacred in the sight of God? And there's no doubt it is. You cannot read scriptures without coming to that conclusion. I believe primary is because of the fact that marriage was designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. But also, and just as important, because it was designed to reveal the image of God, to show what God is like. This is a very important part of it. If then you go to the opening pages of Genesis, and God says, let us create man in our image, in our own likeness and so on, our image and our likeness. Then he created male and female in his image, in his likeness. 
And as you read scriptures, you'll find that even though male and female individually are created in the image of God, they really cannot represent or show what God is like as much as if when they're married. In other words, a man can, yes, show what God is like. A woman, yes, can show what God is like because the created image of God. However, the fullness of what God is like can only be seen in a marriage relationship when male and female are brought together. Then they demonstrate what God is like. That's why marriage must be seen as one of the most beautiful relationships can ever take place on the face of the earth. The only reason why it's ruined is because of sin and the failure of men and women to obey the word of God. That's all. Otherwise, it's one of the most, in fact, it is the most beautiful relationship on earth outside of our coming to place faith in Jesus Christ. The unity of man and woman is designed to show what God is like more than any other relationship or means known to mankind. That's why we must not belittle marriage. We've got to stop making jokes about marriage. We've got to stop putting it down. Marriage is to be placed on the highest pedestal that you can possibly place it because that's where God puts it. It represents his relationship to, to the church, to the people of God. That's why it's also one of the basic reasons why divorce is not a plan of God because if the Bible taught that a husband and wife who's been made one can break that relationship, then that can also be said that if you become a Christian, you can lose your salvation if it represents the church and its relationship to Christ. So marriage in, in the sight of God is a most vital relationship. So please cherish it. Now, it takes work. It takes hard work because we're living in a world, a sinful world, a fallen world, and we have all of society against us. When you live the way God wants you to live in a marriage relationship, you can be living differently than every other person who's married because Christians live differently if they follow the word of God. They think differently. They act differently, you see. And so my encouragement to you, is to study the word, to see what marriage is all about. Because all of us are involved in it sometimes. Either we are, and wish that we were not, or we aren't, and wish that we were. Right? What I'd like to encourage is that we all desire to have the relationship that God has ordained for us. He has ordained that some be single. But those single persons then have all of their attention focused on serving him. When we're married, our attention is focused both on him and our spouse. And he wants us to live in a way that glorifies him. When we do, we show what he's like. And we will then be able to really, really make a positive testimony in a fallen community. One for any questions before we close out. Pastor Lee, um, examining everything, church and state, marriage, divorce, um, my opinion, there is just one word that um, uh, I'll confirm what marriage is. It's absolutely a mystery. As the existence of God is a mystery, 
I think the existence, the marriage looked at in its pure sense and sin being brought in, it's, it's a mystery. Well, in fact, Paul talks about that when he talks about in Ephesians 5, where he says that the relationship between Christ and the church is a mystery. And of course, um, because the marriage is patterned after that, you can say that from that perspective. So I agree. It's, it's a, it's, that's why I'm saying the institution of marriage is an amazing institution, the relationship of husband and wife. Um, the one flesh. I, I encourage you to do a study of the one flesh idea. Many times we talk about it, but we don't know what it means. You see? Um, but it's the most intimate relationship that you human beings can have outside of relationship with Jesus Christ. And even the relationship with Jesus Christ is related to sort of a one flesh because we become a part of his body. You see? And so I agree with you, my brother. All right, anything else? Anyone else? Um, going back to the beginning, um, I think you said that when you're defining uh, marriage, I think you said that's cultural. No, I was giving the cultural and social perspective of marriage, about having to, uh, is a public declaration, you have the legal people, and it's a cultural thing. It's cultural. In other words, we have, certain, we have certain legal things that are related to our culture that if you go someplace else, it's not a part of it. Right, because my whole thing is because I don't like the idea of putting marriage in the hands of the state to say that, for them to define what marriage is. Because then the human... Uh, well, you're too the, late for... I'm sorry, you're too late for that. And the homosexuals the homosexuals are there, you know? No, but you see, you're too late for that. It's already defined. I have that. I didn't go into that. For instance, in order for someone under 18 to get married, they have to do what? Get, get the, the permission of the parents. By the way, you know, you could get as married as young as 12 or 13 in Nassau, you know, if your parents say it's okay. Uh, also, you cannot marry close relatives, you see. Also, it does, although you mentioned homosexual, although it's not stated that you cannot the way the word, the marriage act is worded, it has to be between a male and a female. That's the way it is right now, all right? Although it doesn't use the word homosexual or alternative lifestyle, but it has to do with he and she, you see? So the way it's worded, it has to be between a male and a female. It cannot be. However, there are some lawyers who has actually married homosexuals here. And now I understand, though, that the, 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 the powers that be are after those now to actually going to find them. But there are some, some uh, uh, government officials who have married um, privately homosexuals. But they see that now that's against the law, really, although it's not stated as such. Yes? Uh, sorry, Pastor Lee, you said that um, if a parent gave consent for a teenager to be married, that the state will still recognize that even though the legal age is 17, 18? No, 18. I just read it. Under 18, you need your parents' um, um, consent. Oh. And uh, the further down, I think it goes as far as 13, I believe it is. Now, you see, the, that's why, the, 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 in other words, the young person themselves cannot make that decision. They have to have the consent of the parents. 
You, you, you read the law, you got some crazy things on, on the books. I, I'm, I'm telling you, if you when you read through it, because I've gone through it quite a bit recently for other things that are coming up. And some of the things that are recorded there, you know, from a Christian point of view, most you just wouldn't agree with it. But we just don't, we just don't know the law that well, at least the intricacies of the law. <laughs> 